Hofstra's morning wake-up call. Morning wake-up call. Lively talk. Long Island life. National news. International issues. Through the minds and mouths of Hofstra students. You're listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call only on 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University. All thoughts and opinions stated here on the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call do not reflect the views of 88.7 FM WRHU and its management, Hofstra University, as well as its board of trustees. All contrasting views can be sent to programming at WRHU.org or to 111 Hofstra University, Hempstead, New York, 11549. Good morning, everybody. You're listening to the Thursday edition of the Morning Wake Up Call on 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University. We're talking Long Island life, national news, and international issues uh, today on our program that we have. Trump officials are currently testifying about Mar-a-Lago, the increase in sporting prices with Dr. Joel Maxey, and Hofstra University's production of Cymbeline with Michael Kellner. All that coming up and more on the Morning Wake Up Call. Welcome back, everybody. We are again here at the Morning Wake Up Call, 88.7 FM, Radio Hashi University. I hope you all are doing great today. It is a wonderful day outside. Uh, but before we get to Ronnie's weather over there, we have Dallas's Dish. Take it away, Dallas. Welcome back to Dallas's Dish. And our first headline today is a Honduras judge says ex-president can be extradited to the United States. Former President Juan Orlando Hernandez should be extradited to the U.S. while facing drug trafficking and weapons charges as a Honduran judge ruled on Wednesday from the Associated Press. Gunshots were fired at a rally held by Pakistan's ex-Prime Minister Imran Khan in Pakistan. Current officials do not know if Khan is hurt. The second Amazon warehouse in NYC is to hold union elections in April. And as of right now, Miss Argentina and Miss Puerto Rico, who were both 2020 winners, Marina Valeria, 26, and Fabiola Valentine, 22, wrote on Instagram that they got married on October 28th after having kept their relationship out of the public eye. That was from the Today Show this morning. The Russo brothers have confirmed that a live-action Disney musical of the famous Hercules will be a modern musical and apparently inspired by TikTok, according to Variety. And for our final headline, Powerball jackpot prize is now up to $1.5 billion and is the third largest lottery prize ever in U.S. history. And those are your headlines. I I heard it was interesting with the Powerball lottery because they don't want you taking out the cash payment because Mm. if you do that, you get less money. Yeah, because of taxes, right? Yeah, it's something where you get like the annuity payments you Mm. can do it that way. But of course, you don't get all in a lump sum. Whereas if you do do a lump sum, you don't technically get all of it. I don't know. Anyways, enough for our lottery winning chances. Ronnie, it is weather time. What do we got? All right. As for today's weather forecast, it's currently 50 degrees outside of our WRHU studios here at Hofstra. Up in the sky, it is crystal clear with no expectation of rain today. The rest of the day is looking just as clear and sunny with an expected high of 66 degrees during the day and a low of 49 in the evening. Sounding like some good weather, hopefully. Mm-hmm. So a good day, nice day. It's been pretty good this week, it's been I pretty feel humid. like. 
past couple weeks. I don't understand why it starts so cold. I have my nice little sweater on, and then in the afternoon it's like 66 and I'm sweating. Can we mm-hmm. just pick if it's cold or warm? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't like sweating. Sweating is not fun. No, no not fun not. Don't, don't need, I'm waiting for the summer when that happens. You know, you don't need that in fall. That mm-hmm. one day when it was like 80 degrees for some reason. It was literally a scam. Yeah. That was a scam. <laughs> that was that was definitely not it. I was not enjoying that day at all. I'm enjoying today, though. It's a mm-hmm. great early morning. And just so you all know, uh, soon to be, after the midterm elections, we are switching to a two-hour format. Let's so if go. you love us, if you love anybody else on the morning wake-up call, please note, you will get an extra hour for us come that time. Otherwise, we're going to stick to this current hour. So, Dallas, please feel free to go and lay on the mm-hmm. first story for we us. We have a bit of a heavy hitter if you've been following politics as of recently. So, Trump, former Trump aide Cash Patel may be forced to testify to a grand jury in the Mar-a-Lago investigation. On Tuesday, a federal judge ordered former President Donald Trump's advisor Cash Patel to testify before a grand jury in the investigation of handling federal records at Mar-a-Lago. A D.C. District Court Judge Beryl Powell... Powell has granted Patel immunity from prosecution on any information that he can provide to the investigation. As we mentioned, Cash Patel originally served as a national security and defense official under the Trump administration, and during the summer he was appointed one of Trump's designated officials to interact with both the National Archives and the Justice Department, who were both trying to repossess classified records that Trump had kept from his presidency. Uh, Patel is now one of a handful of advisors post-Trump's presidency who could be under legal risk related to the Mar-a-Lago situation. For background, the Justice Department are extremely interested in the classification levels of these documents and how they even ended up on the property. Patel has claimed in media interviews with conservative outlets that he personally witnessed the former president declassifying records before he left office and argued that Trump should be able to release classified information. So far, Patel's grand jury appearance has not been scheduled, and in October, the Justice Department subpoenaed Patel to a grand jury, and at the time, he declined to answer questions under asserting his Fifth Amendment protection from self-incrimination. So far, Patel has not been charged with any crime since the Wall Street Journal first reported on this development, but it is an ongoing situation, and I wanted to get you guys' opinions on it, because there's a lot of tea going around right now. Oh, 100%. I, you know... I think it's about time we got some answers because, for one, it's not every day that classified documents go missing, and even more shocking, it's that they're found at the house of a former president. Now, listen, I'm not saying that President, former President Trump is the only one with skeletons in their closet, but for someone whose presidency was turbulent, to say the least, and whose transfer of power was far from seamless, you would think, hey, maybe I shouldn't take these with me, that I already have a lot on my plate. This wouldn't be the best idea, but, you know, that apparently and unfortunately didn't seem to cross his mind because no matter how much information comes out, we're never really going to know what we're upset about outside of the fact that they were taken because, again, you know, they they are classified, at least to us. Mm -hmm. The former president, Trump, could say these are these are declassified under under his word, but we're never going to find out what those are. At least I don't see that happening for the foreseeable future. And. Not to mention, this is not the only thing that Trump has to defend. As as of recently, I believe on October 31st, the criminal tax fraud case against the Trump organization, including his real estate company, uh, began. So mm-hmm. he is definitely in some hot water. And to jump on you mentioning like him declassifying things on his own word, a quote from an article from The Guardian that really got me was, as Trump has been doubling down on his claims that he had the right to disclose, to classify and take the documents home. 
was when he talked to Fox News host Sean Hannity. When Trump was asked about the procedures used to declassify documents, Trump claimed that presidents had the authority to declassify documents by the power of thought. The direct quote is, Different people say different things, but as I understand it, if you're president of the United States, you can declassify just by saying it's declassified, even by thinking about it, end quote, as Trump told Hannity. So if he's operating under the belief that he has the power just to be like, I think this should be declassified, and now it is without taking the proper steps and the procedures that I don't really know what the actual procedure is, but if it's a document of national importance, it's probably long and complicated, especially if the Justice Department is like, you did this incorrectly. Yeah. It's sounding very Orwellian to mm-hmm. me about mm-hmm. how I can just ultimately think that something is declassified. Mm-hmm. It's, and you got the thought police, right? You don't really want to get anywhere yeah. through there. But we had an interview a couple, like it's on a month ago or whatnot, with Dr. Mina Bose, of course, from Hofstra. And we actually talked about the Presidential Records Act and all that's really thought through there. And, of course, once a president leaves office, it's really in the hands of the National Archives, right? Mm-hmm. They take care of these documents and all of that. But apparently there's still some documents of the National archives are still, still not for. located uh, and that was as of I think October 1st or 2nd they were still looking for that so granted there's still these implications that are there uh, I think with Patel testifying granted since he did have contact with the National Archives and worked with them in a sense I think there's probably more we're going to uncover about this situation uh, and granted we don't really know what's going to be going on in the next couple of months. Heck, I mean, Ronnie, I know I think you had mentioned before we got on air about the whole Trump organization getting investigated for the real estate company itself. Uh, and then now you have the subpoena by the January 6th committee, whether he complies with that or not. And there's just so much that's going on where you thought the turbulency of the presidency itself was one thing. This is the after show. You know, when everybody, they got like the bachelor and the after show. This is the after show now. We're in the second uh, spot of this section, if anything. When you talk about the show, and I think unfortunately what you're seeing right now is there's a whole other spinoff series, and that's what's happening legally in the United States where there's almost no repercussion for his actions. All of the, you know, he appointed, I forget how many hundreds of federal judges, including obviously on the Supreme Court, three of them in just four years. So you look at at any time where there maybe could be accountability, where maybe someone could step up and finally say enough is enough, the courts are controlled because he nominated them. So as we've seen with Mar-a-Lago, this has been so tough to try to get any sort of criminal punishment or, or repercussion because, again, the judges are the, the ones that he handpicked because he knew that they would be his puppets. So how are you going to have to keep – how are you going to keep somebody in check when it's someone that he handpicked? So I think you can't really react too much one way or another because we might legally mm-hmm. think that there's an argument, but – that argument can't be made if the person already is a puppet of. And even like you t- touched on the legal ba- battle, Jason. Even Trump's lawyers have not repeated the claims in court filings that these documents were declassified because of the fear that they're going to face penalties for lying in court. So if they're not even going to like back up what he's saying because they could go to jail for lying, something's wrong. Like so- somebody's not I, telling I the truth. I think that here. gives you just as much information as you mm-hmm, need. That's they- all you need to know. His backing is entirely fabricated, and mm-hmm. if it is said in court, will you know result in penalties on its being said alone. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it, I feel like the the proof for for lack of a of a better of a better uh of a better saying, the proof is in the pudding. It's mm-hmm. it's it's right there, and we just have to you know have to realize that. And I'm not a United States president. I can't imagine the stress, the long hours that you have to go through. I personally do not think that documents of national importance classified or declassified should not be able to leave the white house 
especially travel to Mar-a-Lago, which is far from the White House, if I am geographically correct. I just don't think that concept should have even been on the table at any point in time, unless they're going to like a conference. They have clearance and approval, which obviously these ones did not, because we would not be in a big stinker of a situation like this if they had proper approval. And it's just a lot of mistakes that are coming to light once again. And somebody's going to have to answer to them. And that someone is probably going to be former President Donald Trump unless he is allowed to do what he has done in the past and what we've seen to d- seen from his track record of just not having to play by the same rules as other people. I just I don't I don't see a way out of this for him. I, I really don't. And I'm going to be very upset if he finds one, mm-hmm. because for for everything that he's done. Most of his, if not all of his uh, escapades, let's put it like that, have come to affect more than one person, to put it lightly. These are documents of national importance, and this is a breach of national security, classified or declassified. You know, if if they are declassified, it's not, I don't believe it's solely up to him to to release these. There has to be, you know, there has to be a a point that, you know, it comes down to checks and balances. So I, I really don't see a way out of this one. Where we're going to have to find out with that. Granted, I think it's going to be a long and arduous time to see. Nevertheless, we are going to take a mini spot, uh, at least a song spot, if you will, before our interview on sports. I actually did play this song one other time, which is in the summertime. We're going to play it again. Uh, and then we will get into our interview with Dr. Joel Maxey in just a little bit. So we will see you on then. Welcome back, everybody, to the Morning Wake Up Call. Again, you're listening on 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University. Uh, and we do have our guest on the line right now, so we are going to get right to it when the time comes as well. So, of course, as you probably all know, granted, sports prices can be a little hefty every now and again. I know we've all heard the old expression, take me out to the ball game." Everybody remembers that old song they still do nowadays on those seventh inning stretches uh i usually say now it's take me out of my savings account uh, in the event that people usually drop a lot more uh, on money there as this consumer price index has ballooned to 8.2 percent uh for september of 2022 again that accounts for a lot of financial means or people who are looking for to getting products and things of that nature uh, and as people look to find those affordable prices uh, it does seem difficult in a mainly post-pandemic world caught up in inflation from gas and other products uh, which have impacted many industries uh, but the sports business specifically has that in there as well uh, so in order to join us uh, to talk about that is Dr. Joel Maxey, who is the Department Head of General Business and Sports Business at Drexel University. Dr. Maxey, how are we doing today? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me, Luke. I appreciate to uh, All good. having me so, on. So concessions have faced a huge uh, spike at sporting events, and sometimes you have that issue where you have a lot of prices and whatnot going through there as well. Um, so, of course... There's instances of people having to pay for $18 beer, $12 hot dogs, things of that nature. So what would you attribute this to mainly? All right. First, I would say this. All, I mean, prior to the pandemic, prior to this inflationary spiral, uh, I think probably as long as there's been concessions at stadiums, the markup in a stadium is, has always been quite high. So people have always paid more for a beer, more for a soda, more for a hot dog than they would at uh, at the local convenience store or at or at a 
at, at typically at a restaurant too. So, so sports concessions, and that's also true in the movie theater and, and these other sort of concession areas that are tied to entertainment venues. And there's a lot of explanations for that. Everything from they have a monopoly from once you get in there to people are have have a high willingness to pay once they're there as well. So they want to have uh, have their beer, have their popcorn, uh, have their soda, what it, whatever it's going to be, and that's all part of the experience. So they're willing to pay for that. That said, um, the current rise in prices is probably exactly tied to the inflationary spiral we're seeing everywhere. So like you mentioned, 8.2% in from September of 2021 to September of 22, it actually spiked up a little higher than that in June. It was a little bit over 9%. That's all consistent with baseball season. Uh, and so it's very likely that you saw what the prices price increases that you might have seen at the ballpark at the concession stand are just tied to that uh, inflationary spiral so everybody was kind of raising prices uh and and i don't think ballparks were uh an exception although i didn't know i mean there's a high mark up there anyway so i personally didn't notice tremendous increases in prices but um very likely there were there were some that were just consistent with that inflationary spiral we've seen in the last uh five or six months. Now, Doctor, although people have been wishing to get back to sporting events since the pandemic restrictions have been lifted, how, how do you think fans have taken to this increase in uh, concessions when they in their attendance at sporting events? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think probably when fans are thinking to going out to a sporting event, and, and doubtless people are anxious to get back in, in this 2022 season uh, has really been the first one where it's fully back to, to normal in a sense. Um, but I think they think of the, uh, you, I mean, you, you mentioned fan cost index. They probably are thinking like, what's the whole entire cost of going to games? Uh, and, and so the, the ticket, the parking, the concessions are all included into that. And so, yes, yeah, certainly as those prices go up, that means that people are a little bit more careful. And if prices are going up across the economy, like they have been, it's like, well, discretionary income, like going to a sporting event might uh, might be pushed back a little bit like we, we might not want to spend that much i think one of the uh positives of a sporting event though is that you can decide you can say okay the first thing that's important is that we buy our tickets and then we can adjust our concession buying after that so there's nothing that forces someone to buy concessions once they're there so maybe they still buy the tickets and then they cut back a little bit to uh one less soda or one less beer whatever the case may be once they're inside uh the Concessions prices really are priced to like willingness to pay. So, so the venues are saying, well, how much are people willing to pay for this? Uh, and so, in, that's why maybe in some cases you've seen prices go up more than in than in others. And kind of on the same track with um, sports fans, companies are uh, stadiums have big incentives to try to get as many people as possible for uh, revenue purposes but what is the biggest focus for making this experience maybe more attractive for non-sports fans who may look at these prices and be like i'm not that interested in going but what can companies do to like try to gain more people in attendance yeah i think uh, if you think about american sports and i if uh one thing that's interesting is to actually go to like say a soccer game in europe 
we're very entertainment focused. So if you go to an NBA game or Major League Baseball game, but uh, every time out uh, in 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 the in an NBA game, at every between every inning, there's something going on on the field, some some sort of entertainment, whether it's the flying slam slam dunkers or the uh, the t-shirt cannons or things like this, and music and the cams that go around and catch people in the audience. So I think. Especially in American sports, we've been very conscious for a lot time, a long time, of making this an entertainment event. This is a whole um, pro professional sports, in particular, is uh, an entertainment event, and you'll see it vary some. I think minor league sports, minor league baseball, very much tries to do things to attract kids at lower prices, and and the entertainment focuses more on kids. But I think there has been. Uh, for a long time, a real focus on what can we do to make this interesting for everyone? Because not, I mean, the fact of the matter is not everyone is a is a diehard sports fan and is glued to uh, every batter and every pitch. Some some people are there really looking for other entertainment aspects and and sports adapt. So there's there's a lot of things that go on inside the stadium that are in in a way not sports related. And I think some of the true old sports fans would say, uh, I, I I I could do without all this stuff. But that's that's exactly why it's there is for uh, the the non-sports fan or the casual sports fan to come and, and have a good time as well. So we're talking about the entertainment during a game and trying to create that family-friendly atmosphere, but the average ticket price for an MLB game for a family is $256.41, according to the Associated Press. So how do franchise owners maintain their bottom line while also catering to families on a budget? Yeah, sure. Uh, good question. I think, I mean, one thing that you have to, I mean, families have to, uh, are, are also looking for uh, good deals and so forth. In, in sort of comparing across sports, uh, for example, we've talked a lot about baseball and we're at, at World Series time right now, but but uh, far and away with 161 games per team, so 80, 81 home games per team, baseball tickets are are the least expensive so yeah 246 dollars for family for it does seem i mean that that is a, a big chunk of money for sure um but again it kind of comes out so people seem to be willing to pay that i know when i go to baseball games i see a lot of kids there i see a lot of families there so certainly uh there are plenty of families who are willing to pay uh about that much and and as i mentioned i mean there there are ways to you don't have to have all um you don't have to buy a baseball hat every time you don't have to spend the most on concessions so there are ways to do that more economically and teams do do things like value packs and group discounts and uh and uh there are ways to get tickets cheaper i think sometimes people kind of long for the old days when i i've seen a couple of uh of uh, executives talk about yeah we used to have uh uh, $8 bleacher seats or $12 bleacher seats, even in places like Yankee Stadium. And then when the secondary market came around, those were being resold for 40 or what. And, and I think that's been a challenge too. It's like we, there was a time when, yeah, we'd like to have these inexpensive seats for families and, and so forth. But with the advent of the, of the secondary market and, and the resellers market, uh, it's been very hard for us to do that because we put those on the market and brokers buy them and they're immediately resold for two or three times as much. So they face that challenge as well. But I think the main thing that they are able to do is offer packages, discounts, group discounts, those sorts of things. And, and uh, that helps those on a budget. 
And again, you're listening to the Morning Wake Up Call, talking with Dr. Joel Maxey from Drexel University on sports inflation. So I think, like you mentioned, uh, I remember I would go to a New York Mets game, and they have you know all these standard packages. You know, you get to go into the seats and whatnot. And I think a lot of uh, just fans in general usually get a little uh, agitated, if you will, based on these sports prices. But one main reason would be more on the supply chain issues. There might be in the upticks in costs, uh, especially with anything when it comes to concessions and things of that nature. So how are stadiums necessarily adapting to these price impacts and how they can levy the cost, if anything? Yeah, that's a good, um, uh, that's a more complex issue. I expect uh, that the supply chain issues very much affect, so, so they've affected the food industry and the transportation industry in general. And so that's how concession, I mean, concessions is, is food and it mean it's, it's trucked or shipped from somewhere else to uh, ultimately to the stadium. And so certainly you will have that issue in stadiums that, that you'll, they'll have the same upward pressure on their prices as restaurants do, as grocery stores do, et cetera. And, and it is kind of complex. And I can only think that they're probably trying to work through that as best they can. They're still sort of, I mean, they're, they're in a, in a situation where they've had a, they have a pretty high markup anyway. So they may have some more flexibility than your local corner store in terms of, of uh, how much of a cushion they've got uh, to guard against price increases. But at the same time, they're facing those, those issues of increased costs. And, and if they could, they would want to pass it on to, to their customers too. Cause I mean, that's natural business practice. If our costs go up, we're going to try to re recoup that somewhere and that's usually with with higher prices but um that that is a, a more complicated issue really uh, on the other side of things with the tickets themselves you don't really have supply chain issues there so i mean the, the stadium is there the tickets are there that is not so much affected by these supply chain issues that have um, affected other parts of the economy but they, they definitely affect the food service and the concessions issue but it, it's somewhat of a of a complex practice sort out and i think we're still i mean in the economy the macro economy as a whole people are still trying to to sort that out and figure out exactly exactly what the issues are how much of the uh increase in costs are supply chain plain <clears throat> i'm sorry supply chain issues how much are monopoly issues with corporations raising prices how much are uh excess demand issues etc so there's a lot of there's a lot of moving parts in there and doubtless some of those, uh, especially the supply chain, probably affect those concession prices. Well, Doctor, you have given us incredible insight into business and sports business. Is there anything else that you'd like to add before we let you go? Uh, I think that's we, we pretty much covered it. Uh, I, mean, I, I guess I would add go Phillies since I'm here in Philadelphia. Oh, but, as uh, a Phillies fan wearing my hat right now, I second that. Yes, sir. Go Fightins. All right. All right, great to talk with you. Thank you so much, Doctor. As once again, that was Dr. Joel Maxey, head of the Department of General Business and Sports Business at Drexel University, talking to us regarding the inflation of concession prices in ballparks and professional sports. Have a good one, Doctor. Enjoy. All right, thank you very much. Glad to do it. You guys have a good day. Okay, anyways, we're going to get, we're going from one interview to another. You're going back to back. 
Uh, so granted, we have the 74th Shakespeare Festival that has been being conducted uh, right now, actually, at Hofstra, which is great. Um, so students, of course, always performing those classic plays from the Bard, always in the catalog of Shakespeare and the folios. And the particular one that we have uh, going on for now, uh, we have Cymbeline, which is directed by Cindy Rosenthal, uh, which has shows for this Friday and Saturday at 8 o'clock, as well as a Sunday show at 2. And here to talk about it is our very own Hofstra student, Michael Kellner, class of 2023. Uh, so, Michael, how are we doing today? How's everything going? I'm doing really good. How are you doing, Luke? Doing okay. Not too bad. You know, just getting through the days as anything else. I know you've had very busy days yeah. uh, with your production <laughs> time and all of that. So, I know for Cymbeline, you, you're kind of wearing multiple hats in this case. So, what roles and, like, I guess, responsibilities do you have in this particular production? Uh, in this particular production, um, uh, first and foremost, uh, I'm an actor, um, and that basically is, you know, we're, we're in charge and responsible for telling the story of Cymbeline and, um, you know, bringing to life the, the words of the play and bringing to life the character uh, in our own way. Um, I am also the sound assistant uh, for the show. Um, funny story about that, I actually didn't really work on a lot of sound. Uh, for this, um, it was more of an independent study with one of our sound design professors um, in a course on how to mix. So I didn't really like put a lot of actual mixing work into the show. But um, the 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 real sound designers were um, uh, Mackenzie Crestel as well as uh, Jack Goodman, and they did a fantastic job on this show. So, Michael, every show is brings a, you know its own set of difficulties when when bringing it to life. You know, no, no, nothing is ever simple. But how difficult is it to bring a show that is as old as this alive today? Um, it's it's it is tough. Uh, but a, a lot of people like a lot of people really think that Shakespeare is is kind of this alien kind of uh, set of plays um, when. You study them, however, it's it, you. You quickly find that it's it's as easy to understand as like modern day English, because um, I mean, on a cold read, you're you're not really gonna understand what it what it means. But all like what we have to do is look up words that we don't understand, look up phrases that we don't understand. Um, we have two amazing uh, dramaturgs, uh, Iska Alter, as well as um, assistant dramaturg Katie Blakely who helped us during that process to really figure out what exactly we're saying. And once we do that, all we have to do is put our own meaning to those words and, and, and put our um, own process as an actor to bring that to life. Um, so it, it takes a little bit of time, but once you, once you understand what you're doing and you, what you understand what the work is, um, it's very, very easy to bring to light. And Luke and I are coming from a background of being pride guides. We talk a lot about our drama um, program here at Hofstra University. But from your perspective as someone actively involved as an actor and having like backstage roles, what do you believe sets Hofstra Shakespeare productions apart from maybe anywhere else in the world? Uh, well, one, we have the most accurate replica of the Globe theater stage in North America, which is great. <laughs> um, but we... You know, I, I think I think a lot of it is um, a production aspect, to be honest. Um, we really 
love going all out for these shows because, you know, everyone's done Hamlet. Everyone's done a, mid- a Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, uh, not a lot of people have done Cymbeline, though. This is actually our first time doing Cymbeline. But I think because of that, we really want to make it special. We play with a lot of the setting um, of of the actual uh, play. This time we were setting it in World War II. Um, with Macbeth, it was uh, set during World War One. Um, Midsummer Night's Dream was kind of a modern time uh, play. We we really love to play with the uh, the different ways that we can like the different time periods that we can actually put the story in because it it also proves that it is relevant to any time period um, that we talk about. And you know it's funny you bring that up because. I feel like Shakespeare just forever and eternity will always be relevant. And Hofstra obviously has had a plethora of its Shakespeare festivals. And you've been involved in several of those with both onstage and offstage roles. So what is the main difference between those two roles and what is the hardest part? I think the difference is the way that you approach the story. Um, As an actor, you, you know, you're reading the script, you're studying the script as well. Um, and you are, as an actor, you have to you you really have to dig deep into uh, your own life to kind of bring to life uh, these emotions, these really really heavy emotions. Because as we all know, Shakespeare is very very dramatic. Um, uh, specifically for this show, there's this there's one um, monologue that I do where I'm where Posthumus is cursing out all women it's a very ugly monologue very horrible monologue um and obviously i don't feel that way but i have to bring uh events from my own life that give that kind of a similar like anger or or like disappointment um and i have to figure out what that is in my head and be able to connect that to those words uh without you know without kind of jeopardizing the integrity of the show. Um, and then offstage, uh, specifically with sound design, it's, uh, you, you really, you, you also look at the script, but you, what you look for is the actors giving you what you need to, um, to create and giving, uh, and like looking for what the director can give you to create. Um, Specifically, we had um, soundtracks for every character, every like major character, um, and that was done after watching all of the actors um, go through their characters and, and really play it out. And once we did that, we could figure out like, oh, like this would be their theme song. This is what's going to play whenever they show up. Um, and it's just kind of like a giving give and take thing because that also feeds into the performance of the actor once you hear that music on stage and you're listening to the morning wake up call with michael kellner on cymbeline so michael i know you went through a little bit about your character posthumous for cymbeline do you want to explain a little bit more about the character and the development that goes on through the show yeah sure um it's it, w- it was a really interesting uh rehearsal process um we had we we the first couple of weeks we did a lot of table work, which I think really really helped with this play specifically. Um, this is a a very tough play on a it's it's 
to be honest, hard to get through uh, on a read. Um, it's very, very complicated. Um, and a lot of scholars actually believe that it is one of the least Shakespearean plays just because of how complicated it is. And so we, we really want to work on figuring out and untangling all of that confusion um, for, a for the first couple of weeks. And then we did a lot of, um, we did a lot of emotional work on, on this, on the show. It's a, it's a very dirty show. It's a very gritty show. Um, uh, and we, we, we had, uh, uh, we had an, ac uh, an actual, um, so sorry, intimacy director, uh, which I had never really worked with before, uh, to this extent. Um, just because, you know, there are moments in this show that are very, very heavy and very tough to get through. So, like, in order to direct that, you have to build a certain trust between the actors um, and build a certain trust between uh, the people watching the actors where you can do that comfortably in a safe way, which I think is really, really cool. So, Michael... You bring up, you know, the the difficulties of you know, the the ins and outs of your character in different scenes, but you also mentioned how the Hofstra drama department goes all out for the you know for these plays in general. So other Shakespeare productions on stage have included you know everything from trapdoors to smoke machines. Uh, what makes this production unique from uh, you know having having an, an inside view? What makes this production unique from the other ones that you've been a part of? Yeah, um, this one, this one, I think is is really, really unique. Uh, I think the biggest things were the um, was the lighting um, and projections, uh, and then as well as the the uh, rising pit set that we had for many scenes. Um, uh, we've done a lot of projections uh, for many shows. We did it for Macbeth. We did it for Troilus and Cressida. Um, but I think for this one, we really wanted to play up what we could do with that. We had a dream sequence with, with uh, you know, pictures of, of some of the actors, um, and they would, like, burn up, and, and, and we, had, we had, like, like different fire projections and, and all these crazy, crazy illusions um, that I think really brought a interesting air to the show. Uh, and then the pit, which is something that we, I don't, me personally, I've never seen used, um, in the, in the playhouse before we, you, you know, we, we put a whole set, um, on the pit and it would rise, uh, specifically for in the show scenes from Italy. We had this idea that Italy is this place where Posthumus was banished to. And he found kind of these like gritty people, these very um, crude people, specifically Johnny Grimes's character, Yakimo. Uh, we had this idea that it would rise up literally from hell, and that's kind of where he's placed, um, as opposed to, you know, his homeland, Britain. Um, and I think that was a really interesting and fun thing to put into the show because it, it was it was a very unique uh, ride, so to speak. And coming from an audience perspective, as someone who is looking to see you guys this weekend, what should the audience inspect, and what do you hope they take away from the production of Cymbeline? Um, 
Well, the first thing I would have to say is, uh, as an audience member, um, be ready for a three-hour show. Uh, it is it is one of Shakespeare's longest shows. Uh, but however, uh, we've gotten a lot of feedback from from audiences already that say that it was engaging throughout, um, and I think that uh, is a testament to how hard each and every actor. Um, worked on the show. Um, I know a lot of the seniors and a, a lot of the juniors and the sophomores um, put everything they had into the show. Um, it was a very amazing cast, and um, everyone brought their A game. Uh, constantly, people are bawling on stage, um, and and it, we 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 are constantly engaged in this. So I think be ready for. I just yeah, just be ready for that. I think I think people uh, underestimate like the 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 power of what what people can do when when they really put their mind to something. Is there anything else you'd like to add or mention or highlight about the upcoming drama season? Absolutely, um, we have another show. Uh, it's called the Giddy Thing. It is a one-hour cut of Shakespeare. Uh, Shakespeare's um, much ado about nothing uh that is actually going up tonight and uh this weekend um for Hofstra students you can see it tonight as well as saturday at two um and then we have a bunch of other plays uh coming up uh next season um and that is going to be a really really fun season because it's going to be the seniors last shows it's going to be the first shows with the new uh bfa class as well as a lot of freshmen's first show. So um, if you want to go see that, it would support so many people, um, and that would just really make their day. Well, thank you. We really appreciate thank your you time. Guys. As a former actor, I say, break a leg. Uh, you <laughs> thank <know>. you. <laughs> and obviously don't mention the curse play's name oh, on course. show night. Oh, of course. Um, so again, that was Michael Kellner, class of 2023, on Hofstra University's Shakespeare Fest. Shakespeare Festival and the show Cymbeline. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. And so now, Ronnie, I know you have your package coming up, so feel free to give the lead in for us. Well, when you think of a news team, you seldom think of elementary school students. Well, Dr. George Maurer and his students at Abbey Lane Elementary School are here to change the way you think. I recently had the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Maurer and learning about his incredible program, Abbey Action News. Let's take a listen. Happy Friday, aviators! Today is May 14th, 2022. Thank you for tuning in to watch our last Abby Action News of the school year. What you just heard wasn't a group of kids playing pretend. Their team of full-fledged fifth-grade news reporters from Abby Action News, the news broadcasting program out of Abby Lane Elementary School, located in Levittown, New York. Surprised? Well, you should be. Broadcasting programs by themselves are impressive. But broadcasting programs in elementary schools are almost unheard of. So why start now? Why start so young? So prior to coming to um, Levittown here, I worked in Mineola schools. And we worked with uh, a program called MSG Varsity uh, at that time. And um, MSG was trying to get 
uh, high school students to cover sporting events and different things that took place in the high school. This is Dr. George Maurer, principal at Abbey Lane Elementary School, located in Levittown. He is the brainchild of Abbey Action News. So when I came here, it was a goal of mine to try to get something in uh, video and audio for our elementary school kids to be exposed in uh, or exposed to. So we talked about it with, with some of the uh, teachers here, and I, I tried to see if there would be anybody that would be interested in trying to create something that really, um, as far as I knew, did not exist at an elementary school level. And we sat down and we planned it out, and we talked about uh, what we hope to accomplish with the kids and what we hope to provide for them. And that was really the early genesis of, of the program. I was intrigued by the work of the Abbey Action News team because of my own grade school experience. Growing up and going to school in East New York, extracurriculars outside of sports were few and far between. Student outlook on life, more specifically their own futures, was very limited. Most kids would say professional athlete, a member of law enforcement, or maybe a doctor when asked about their career plans. Careers in radio were unheard of. Students had no idea that this was a path that they could go down. I, for one, wasn't fully aware of radio as a career until college. For Principal Maurer, that was the driving force behind the introduction of this program to his students. Again, it's that whole notion of um, giving students an opportunity to um, do things that they can look to and say, you know what, maybe I can do that one day when I am an adult, when I'm in college or beyond. Uh, it's that real world application. You know, giving kids an opportunity to be content creators, um, to be able to create something that is entirely student run and student created and then to be able to show that to an audience that is larger than just you know maybe the classroom teacher or even the, the classroom uh, or the building itself. Clearly the media climate is much different today with the arrival of the digital era. Young students are constantly exposed to online media platforms like TikTok and YouTube so students are more in touch with broadcasting even if they just don't realize it yet. You know, you talk to kids nowadays, everybody wants to be a YouTuber or, um, you know, some sort of, you know, web-based personality. And, you know, kids are interested in podcasts and things like that. And they, they want to be involved. They want to do this type of work. So I think we're providing them an opportunity. An opportunity to do work similar to that of the pros. Abbey Action News anchors and reporters are doing everything from story reporting to covering feature stories. Welcome to the latest edition of Mrs. Beasley's Kitchen. I'm here today with Carrie Bliss from Miss Rossi's class. Thanks for joining me, Carrie. Thanks for having me, Miss Beasley. However, it is one that comes with its fair share of challenges. For one, bringing the program to life did not happen overnight, as Dr. Maurer recalls. Yeah, so one of the first things that we had to do was figure out which staff members would run the program or help facilitate the program so we were able to find uh, two staff members that were uh, interested and they really kind of worked behind the scenes to come up with the plan so while they were working on that I was working on getting some of the equipment that was needed we were very fortunate at that time our PTA purchased uh, for us our very first set of equipment uh, so they purchased for us a HD camera with some microphones and a very simple, you know, editing program. Maurer says it was also challenging to introduce the idea of creating a newscast to students who have no experience with the medium at all. Um, so we really kind of had to work with students and, and show them some of the basics 
on how to operate the camera, on how to, you know, write a story, like what a good story needs and how you catch people's attention and what makes the story of interest to someone else. But once we were able to do that, you know, the, the students really kind of gravitated towards it. They got an understanding. As more students developed their skills and understanding of the medium, increasingly new students got involved. It was a spiral effect, making those students who are already a part of the program even more interested encouraging them to get more involved in production. Some kids automatically know that they want to be an on-air personality, and then we have other students who are very maybe shy or a little less confident and maybe don't want to be on screen. But sometimes things happen, and our news anchors are, are absent from school. Maybe they get sick or something like that, and we need somebody at the last minute to jump in, and a lot of times it's the behind-the-scenes kids that will say, hey, you know, would you be willing to jump in and and you know be an anchor and they do and then what they find is that they really enjoyed it and that they they liked it and they did a nice job and then they got you know nice feedback from their teachers and their peers and now all of a sudden you know the, the students that were behind the scenes now were like oh yeah I want to be on camera too that that was pretty fun that was awesome. Dr. Maurer says it did not take long for the entire school community to take notice and recognize the work that was being done. He says it inspired students to get involved and open their eyes to broadcasting. And when the other kids see them walking around the building with all of the equipment, they get all excited. They're like, oh, there's Abbey Action News. Oh, there's, you know, so-and-so's, you know, reporting on a story. And the other kids are excited just knowing that, you know, somebody's going around the building to cover a story. Hi, I'm Harrison Ginsburg, and I'm here with Miss Sparrow and Miss Baez, our band and orchestra directors, and Miss Wenz's second grade class, the Abbey... The second graders at Abbey Lane are going to have the opportunity to learn a musical instrument next year. Today, they will get to hear different instruments and learn a little bit about each instrument. This will help the students decide what instrument they might not like to play next year. Abbey Action News covers a range of stories in the school community, from everyday happenings to live school events. The student reporters even go as far as to cover live school events on the spot and bring the story to the rest of the school. Hi, I'm Max Gospodashitz, and I'm here with Mrs. Scherpani's kindergarten class. The kindergartners at Abbey Lane are celebrating the, their moms or special woman in their life at today's tea. But the goal of Abbey Action News is not just to teach students how to report, write, and produce TV newscasts. It's also designed as a platform for students to flourish and develop themselves as individuals. It's important to understand just how much the students are influenced by the program. According to Principal Maurer, he has seen a change in his students that goes beyond the simple desire to be on the air. I think that the overall confidence of our students within the program, you know, from the time that they start to the time that they finish with us at the end of the year, um, they all really grow in lots of different ways. After interviewing Principal Maurer, it was easy to see just how much his program has done for his students, and their continued participation is a clear indication of just that. Naturally, I was curious as to whether or not other schools had taken to introducing a similar program. Principal Maurer explained that despite being a seemingly daunting task, the process of implementation is actually quite simple. People, when they see what we're able to do, they're always very impressed and then they're also equally as overwhelmed thinking that they can't possibly do that or maybe that they don't have the resources to do what we do. Um, but you can, you know, facilitate a program just like ours, you know, very inexpensively, even with old equipment or used equipment. Principal Maurer and his faculty have even gone as far as to host workshops to teach schools how to implement a broadcast program of their own. We've had some people that have 
you know, been part of, of our workshops that have called us up or, you know, done site visits here. And then, you know, a few weeks or months later, they share with us their first new show. And we've been able to do that in, in a couple of districts on Long Island, but also here within our own district. Some of our other elementary schools have uh, taken on similar, not identical, but, you know, their own version of students covering, you know, news program or news stories uh, within their building. It's been great. For WRHU and the Long Island Advocate, I'm Ronnie Gonzalez, and in the words of Abby Action News, Thanks for watching! See you later, Abigators! This is your wake-up call. You're listening to Radio Hofstra University, available worldwide at WRHU.org. Last night, President Biden addressed the nation as he highlighted the threats to democracy in a chilling over 20-minute speech. Here's a quick package that we were able to do on that. With less than a week until the midterm election, on Wednesday night, President Biden made a desperate final plea to the American people about what is at stake. Without wasting any time, President Biden discussed the events that transpired at Speaker Pelosi's home this past weekend. A man smashed the back windows and broke into the home of the Speaker of the House of Representatives, the third highest ranking official in America. He carried in his backpack zip ties, duct tape, rope, and a hammer. As he told the police, he had come looking for Nancy Pelosi to take her hostage, to interrogate her, to threaten to break her kneecaps. But she wasn't there. Her husband, my friend Paul Pelosi, was home alone. Biden was also quick to point out the similarities between this event and what took place during January 6th. It's hard to even say. After the assailant entered the home asking, <clears throat> where's Nancy? Where's Nancy? Those are the very same words used by the mob when they stormed the United States Capitol on January the 6th, when they broke windows, kicked in the doors, brutally attacked law enforcement, roamed the corridors, hunting for officials, and erected gallows to hang the former vice president, Mike Pence. He then placed the blame on former President Trump for his irresponsible actions. It was an enraged mob that had been whipped up into a frenzy by a president repeating over and over again the big lie. His main point of the entire speech was to tell the American people about what is at stake on their ballot and just who they are voting for. It's estimated that there are more than 300 election deniers on the ballot all across America this year. We can't ignore the impact this is having on our country. It's damaging, it's corrosive, and it's destructive. All sound courtesy of CBS. With just days until the election, Perhaps this is the messaging that will resonate with voters and help them to make up their minds. Or is this another misstep that will only further hurt the Democrats' unlikely odds of holding Congress? For Morning Wake Up, I'm Jason Weig. Hofstra's Morning Wake Up Call. Morning Wake Up Call. And welcome back, everybody. We do have just a few short minutes before we head on out to Off the Charts. Jason, thanks for the package there. It was great to hear. Definitely informative to have, if need be. Do do we have any other thoughts, anything we're looking to do this week? Are we all going to go see Cymbeline? What's the, what's the vibe here? What we got? 
I uh, really don't got too many plans this weekend, so it's a pretty chill one. Looking to you know catch up on uh, on some sleep and uh, just you know take it easy. I think we only need to catch up on sleep. I think mm-hmm. especially when November and now we got heck, it's gonna be almost a month till finals at this mm-hmm. point. I mean, it's crazy. But for me, I will be trying to catch up on sleep, but I will be doing kind of a double feature Saturday. I'll be seeing uh, a giddy thing at two p.m. because one of my super close friends is in a leading role. Very proud of him. Who, who that. is that now? Uh, Ryan Pereira. Shout out Ryan Pereira. Let's go. Um, and then I'll be seeing Cymbeline that night, starring the wonderful Michael Kellner. Thanks again, and, Kellner. And, and, and Grace. Don't forget Grace. Grace? Grace is in Cymbeline, Grace too? is Cymbeline. <laughs> the, more you, the more you learn. The more you learn on the morning. Da, 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 da. <laughs> Jason, what we got going on? It'd be nice to catch up on sleep, but I am an anchor on Hofstra Votes Live. So on Tuesday during election night, make sure to turn in the WRHUs. We'll have our live feed from the Lawrence Herbert School of Communication. Definitely have a lot going on. I know we're very busy. Sunday is an open house day. Ooh. The last one of the semester. We're going to get through it. It's good. I hope weather's going to really pan out. That would be nice to see. But, you know, mm-hmm. definitely we'll... Shout out all the pride guides in the world. Yes, there are a lot of them now. We have, I think, over 80 at this point. And so. now you get to talk about not the three-time, but uh, the, the four-time. Four Marconi award-winning radio station and... On that note, that is going to do it for us today at the four-time Marconi Award-winning radio station, WRHU. We hope you all are going to have a great day. Please tune in to the Friday edition. Friday is great. All days of the morning wake-up call are great. So please make sure to keep it on this dial at 88.7 FM. And we will see you all come next week. Have a good one, everybody.